Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 132nd show, so I appreciate everybody's support for the show, and this year we've actually won three awards for this show, so I appreciate everybody being involved. Today's guest is leadership expert, Dr. Mike Meyer, author of The Ben Franklin Bets. Love this book, and being I'm from Philadelphia, my home is next to the Art Museum. Uh, We particularly love Ben Franklin here in Philadelphia, home of the soft pretzel and the steak sandwich. So Mike... (laughs) Uh, welcome. And even though you work for Pitt and I went to WVU, I still agreed to interview you. <laughs> it's great to be here, Mark. Spoken after we Philadelphia, lost I could say. Yeah, go ahead. So, uh, Mike, please tell us about your academic career and why you chose to write about Ben Franklin, especially because there's so many books out on Ben Franklin. My academic career is sort of, you know, happened by accident. Um, I'm a journalist by training. I was one of the first Peace Corps volunteers sent to China in 1995. I stayed on in China and worked journalism for almost 15 years um, and wrote three uh, books of immersive reporting about the corners of that country. And when I came back to the U.S. after my son was born, um, someone at Pitt had adopted a girl from China. And, you know, when you're a writer, you're often asked to give talks and do things for free. And I remember being asked by an adoption newsletter if I would write something about, you know, books that adoptive parents might want to read to learn more about China. And through that article, this Pitt professor um, had found me. And so that's why I ended up at, at the University of Pittsburgh. As for Franklin, that was even more of an accident because I was invited to a state luncheon for then Chinese president Hu Jintao. And the person who invited me said, you know, we always like to have one writer, kind of makes us look classy. If we have two, you're just going to get drunk in the corner and complain. Um, (laughs) But I I walked into the State Department and, you know, there was Colin Powell and Barbara Streisand and Yo-Yo Ma was playing his cello and actually thought like, (laughs) does Yo-Yo Ma have to bring his cello everywhere? Can he ever just hang out? Um, But I, I felt really out of place and I stepped into a room that looked like the set of a movie, like Paul Revere's Silver you know, herringbone floors, Chippendale sofas, big heavy curtains that always catch on fire in movies. And I just like exhaled, I put my hand on a table and behind me a voice said, please don't touch that, it's old. And I was very startled and I said, oh, I'm sorry, what is it? And the Marine guard who was standing in the wainscoting there said, that's the table where Benjamin Franklin, excuse me, signed the Treaty of Paris. And I felt really stupid because on the one hand, the first thing I thought was, I didn't know Benjamin Franklin did that. And the second thing was, I don't remember what the Treaty of Paris is. And so I spent the rest of this lunch in the farthest corner, the farthest table um, from Yo-Yo Ma, just thinking about how strange it was that I knew almost everything there is to know about Chinese dynasties and Chinese history, but I knew so little about the founding of my own country. And so as one does, I started Googling that day. Um, and just learning about Franklin. And then my wife, who's a lawyer, said, she was uh, talking to me about this, and she said, you should read his will that she had happened to read. And when I read his will, 
that's when I thought, I can't believe there's not a book about this. And, you know, you know, it's time to write a book when the book you want to read doesn't exist. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting. There was a lot of stuff you had in there that Walter Isaacson didn't even have in his book, which I thought was uh, interesting. Uh, and in the introduction of the book, you wrote about Ben Franklin's uh, fascination with China. As it turns out, you uh, you lived there yourself for 10 years. Yeah. Please tell us about your own interest in China and then about Franklin's interest, because you started to talk a little bit about that. And, sure. and what's the significance of this? So I was posted by the Peace Corps out in the middle of nowhere. I was the first American in a in a rural village, southwest China, um, in Sichuan, um, dirt roads, well water. Um, and honestly, it reminded me of where I grew up in Minnesota. I didn't feel that strong culture shock. I was there training teachers. I was an education major, uh, training teachers back in the States before I joined Peace Corps. So I didn't feel that strong culture shock that I think other people in my group did. There were 15 of us and eight of them went home pretty quickly. Um, and then after I learned how to speak Chinese, after I learned Mandarin, it was sort of a shame to leave it behind. So after my two years in Peace Corps, I moved up to Beijing when I started working um, as a journalist there. Franklin, you know, I think shared a lot of my same fascination in that Franklin, you know, I have it in the book, you're right to point this out in his letters, you can see how just enchanted he was with Chinese agriculture. Um, he tried planting a mulberry tree in his Philadelphia courtyard, hoping to, you know, for sericulture to, to um, make silk. And he realized the climate wasn't favorable to that. He, of course, was fascinated by Chinese inventions. Um, and that was another, you know, you see in one of these accounts, he's reading about Chinese inventions, and then he flips and he's reading about British traders who are making the, the voyage to what's today's Hong Kong. And Franklin in the margin of this account is like figuring out how many days would it take for him to sail? How much would it cost? Um, so he never got to make that journey. So I, I do think that's sort of a, a, a kismet, right? That I'm closing a loop here for him that a person trained in China is the one who's writing his a remarkable story of his afterlife. I mean, you know, as a Philadelphian, in many ways, he hasn't left us. His his inventions in that will alone are being replicated all over the, the world today. I have to tell you, uh, you did a great job with this book because it's a not, you can't put it down. I mean, you're really good mm -hmm. as a storyteller. And I had not realized you were a journalist, which explains why you didn't write like an academic would. <laughs> and, and it was a, a fun read. Thank I was you. amazed to read that Franklin only spent three years in the U.S. in slightly less than 30 year period and that he was considered the father of foreign service, which you talked about when you were at the State Department. Why so long and why was he what was he trying to accomplish? I think Franklin always had itchy feet. Um, I think he was an autodidact as well. You know, he had a couple of years of formal schooling and was always trying to add more on in, onto his you know limited repertoire of knowledge, what he called limited um, he never thought he was good enough or, or smart enough in many ways. You see that in his letters. So when the opportunity came, um, after he had fought many, many battles against the Pennsylvania Assembly, remember Pennsylvania wasn't a crown colony, it was privately owned colony, you know, the Penn family, Sylvania means woods, Penn Woods was the colony. Um, he had butted headed so but butted heads, excuse me, so many times against the Penns and the prevailing rulers that they weren't paying their taxes, that they weren't helping improve Philadelphia. This is where Franklin's philanthropy really began. Like, all right, if you're not going to pay for a street sweeping service, I'll do it. If you're not going to start a library, I'll do it. Um, I think when the chance came to be a colonial agent, basically the diplomat, the representative of the colony in London, he jumped at the chance. Now, he had been to London earlier before he set up his print shop in Philadelphia. 
Um, and he got marooned there and he had to earn his wages back to get home to Philadelphia. So he already knew the city and he had corresponded quite a bit with writers like Samuel Johnson. Um, and he had, you know, his inventions and his scientific discoveries when he was in his 40s brought him renown in London as well. So London was the capital of the Western world then. So it's not surprising to me that he said, okay, I'll get on this ship, I'll sail, you know, the, the three weeks across. Um and I'll represent the colony there. So he did that two separate stints in London, lived there about 17 years. Uh, and then you can still visit his house today. It's right off Trafalgar Square on the way to the Thames. So that's interesting. Herman Melville lived in a house quite near to it. They're on the same street. Um, and then, you know, Franklin was a huge swimmer. And I love when you go visit his house, you realize like, oh yeah, like I get why Franklin was, you know, posthumously elected into the International Swimming Hall of Fame. One of his favorite inventions was swim fins. He would swim in the Thames every morning and then he would sit. He loved taking cold air baths, he called them. He'd sit in his windows naked and let the air wash, you know, dry him off from his swim. So there was that part of London. And then, of course, in the American Revolution, he was sent as minister plenipotentiary, our rep chief representative, to Paris and lived there uh, for over seven years. And the thing that I think is remarkable about that stint is that he took his two grandsons with him, including a seven-year-old. Uh, again, I didn't know he was a great swimmer and in the Swimming Hall of Fame either. Did, Were you, you could, surprised you to learn this? Say, yeah, you could kind of say anything about Franklin and people will believe it. I have a t-shirt that says, um, it's a quote and it says, fake quotes or fake reviews will destroy the internet. And it's attributed to Benjamin <laughs> Franklin. And so many people will stop me on the street and say, he really said that? Gosh, he was so <laughs> ahead of the time. Like, yeah, you can attribute almost anything to him, but often it's true. Yeah. Um, how did foreign service diplomacy impact Franklin's worldview and the new countries placed in it? Well, you know, this, this, I don't want to jump too far ahead in discussion of his will, but I think what happened to him is, you know, in Franklin, his income and his estate was definitely augmented both by his wife's land holdings and his wife's industry, his wife, Deborah, I'm talking about here, but also the fact that he held slaves and he called them servants um, and they worked in his print shop and his family at any given time owned five to seven. But it wasn't until Franklin went to London and met abolitionists such as Granville Sharp and became friends with them and started looking at oh, this is horrible, what's happening here? You know, it started changing his attitudes towards his own home, uh, the people who lived on his street, for example. And this really came to pass when he was in Paris and he was celebrated as being this great scientist and this great diplomat, but he was constantly warring with other people there, such as John Adams, who was trained as a lawyer. And I think when Franklin, his time away, when he got back to Philadelphia in 1787 in time for the Constitutional Convention, um, I think he realized all of a sudden that this republic that he fought so fervently to fund and to support and to introduce soldiers such as General Lafayette to Washington and fight, uh, he realized that it was no longer a government or a ruling class of leather apron men, as he called them, like himself, that all of a sudden it was gentry and it was lawyers and it was slaveholding uh, plantation owners rather than the working class that he rose from and that he felt should have a voice in government. I think that was the biggest change. And that leads to his will, which we'll get to. But you know, one of the things that illustrates this so well is that in the 1750s, Franklin co-founded the Pennsylvania Academy, 
which today is the University of Pennsylvania. Franklin's probably unique among founders of a tertiary school that he left no money to it. He was disgusted by what had happened to Penn when he got back from Paris. And he said, I wanted this to be a school for lower class to become middle class in. I wanted them learning business practices. I wanted them learning accounting and public speaking. And instead you're teaching Latin and Greek, you know, and that the, the lower class from which I came isn't welcome behind the walls of this school. So I think, you know, more than anything, it was these shifts of perspective that when he came back and then to put a button on this, you know, his his last great act of public service is he was elected president of the Pennsylvania Society for the Abolition of Slavery. Um, he no longer held enslaved people at that point, of course, after the revolution. And his last big act of public service was to present the first petition to Congress for the, ab the abolishment of the slave trade, which, of course, well, Congress left. Well, he'll be glad to know that his statue faces the Wharton School of Business. <laughs> there's, a, there's a bench with Glenn Franklin there and it faces the Wharton School. So he'd be pretty happy about that, but be disappointed that uh, it's not necessarily poor kids who are getting that education uh, at the Wharton School. Um, question from the audience. Was there a particular blind spot that Franklin had that impacted his impact on the world? I mean, early on, definitely his blind spot was slavery. Um, his, you know, in the book, I, I, I devote an opening chapter to Deborah, his common law wife, who's remarkable in, in many ways. And it's a separate hour long conversation about Deborah. He trusted her so much that on the pre-printed forms where you give power of attorney, um, the word that was used on the form is I give my friend. And then you put in a man's name. Mm -hmm. um, and Franklin crossed out friend and wrote, I give my wife, Deborah Reed, you know, the power of attorney. Um, she ran their business when he was away. It was she that that oversaw the construction of Franklin Court, their home that they never lived in together. Deborah was there by herself. Um, in her in biographies of Franklin, you know, you mentioned earlier, like what's why take on a Franklin book when there's the shelves are sagging from them. <laughs> One of the things I noticed is that Deborah is often just given this walk-on role in the blockbuster production that was his life, but she was so important to him. I mean, to the point where. If any of you are Philadelphians or you've been to his grave, you know, Franklin in his will, of all the achievements and all the inventions he could have had on his on his gravestone, he writes in the will, this is what I want my epitaph to be, and he even designs the font. And it's just Deborah and Benjamin Franklin. You know, of all his great achievements, Deborah was the one I think that he wanted to be remembered for most. Um, and she's on top of him on that on that tombstone. But this leads back to this blind spot because his treatment of Deborah, you know, in retrospect is not admirable. His long absences, and I think he's quite callous toward her. Um, the way he writes about her in his memoir. Now his memoir is written to his son, their their eldest son, which Deborah probably wasn't the mother of. Franklin probably had William um, with a prostitute. Um, but you know, she she was full of great forbearance. And I I, I don't. I think he had a blind spot with how she might be memorialized. And the same goes for his daughter, Sally, who, while Franklin was in London taking William, her older brother, with him, or when Franklin was in Paris taking his grandson, including Sally's son, Benny, Benjamin Franklin Jr., you know, Sally's expected to be at home in Philadelphia taking care of the family and the house and her seven children. And I love that, you know, Franklin and his will tries to correct this. Um, this is an era of the laws of, of, of coverture, where if you're a married woman, you have no more rights than a dependent child. 
Um, and he makes he takes great pains in his will to explain that this money I'm leaving is for Sally alone. Her husband cannot have any of it. I want her to have an independent life. And he leaves Sally his most his most precious thing that he owns, which is a portrait of Louis XVI, the French king, ringed in diamonds. And he wow. tells Sally, well, this is why we have the emoluments clause in the Constitution, by the way, that uh, our leaders are not supposed to take foreign gifts, because even Thomas Jefferson was like, holy moly, look at the size of that thing. It was, <laughs> was it worth a fortune. It was the single, uh, the, the biggest thing of worth that Franklin owned. But in his will, he gives this to Sally. And then he tells her, but I, you cannot sell the diamonds off to make jewelry because that's a wasteful practice. And I love that Sally gets around this. She starts selling the diamonds off individually to fund her own trip finally to sail across the Atlantic and go to London. She wanted to go to Paris, but the French Revolution was going on and Sally stays for over two years. So I think that's his big blind spot when I look back. About, you know, When the Pennsylvania Academy was founded, it was for men only. Um, I think Franklin could have been more outspoken early on in public about the way you know he ran his home, which was that the women dominated and had great decision-making power. Sounds like um, both the women in his life deserve their own books, especially his wife, who was probably one of the first women who kind of had like an equal say and ownership uh, in businesses. Well, it's a strange thing. You know, you would think that's true. I, I thought the same thing. And then you start looking at tax records in Philadelphia in the 1750s and 60s, and women were tavern owners, innkeepers, hairstylists. Some of them, you know, a lot of the women that own businesses along Broad Street, which is market today, um, yeah. you know, they inherited them from their fathers or they were single at that time when they inherited them. And so they could own them outright. But Sally, you know, she organized the first interstate women's organization because she was collecting money. She was going between the, the colonies to collect money to raise um, for the Continental Army. And she told George Washington, like, I got I raised all these funds and I want to give it to the soldiers. And Washington said, whatever you do, don't give it to them directly because they're just going to buy alcohol and get wasted. They're going to get hammered. <laughs> so instead, it was Sally's fundraising that got the first Continental Army uniforms. I think most of us, if we remember our revolutionary history, the men yeah. were all freezing. Right. Um, and Sally was the one that organized the fundraising for their first uniforms. You're right. They both deserve their own book. The sad <laughs> thing is that a lot of Deborah's letters don't exist anymore. And so I, I, I recreated using her spelling with her words as much as I could in the book where I could get her voice onto the page. But you know, Franklin left behind 10,000 pieces of correspondence. Uh, through Deborah, his wife, we have about 30. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. It'd be hard to, I guess, put together a book like you've just done with Franklin on her. I mean, I guess it would it's require- worth trying. It's, it's worth trying. Yeah, I think that would be a fascinating book. And I think uh, a lot of people would be interested in her story. And that sounds like a movie, too. Mm -hmm. um, why did Franklin have so many pen names? You listed, you know, <laughs> and we've heard of a lot, some of those names, but there's a lot of names. Why did he do that? <laughs> you know, this started because his first published work was a hoax. He hated indenturing under his older brother, James, at the New England Courant, which was James's newspaper in Boston. And Franklin had signed a seven-year contract to be his indentured servant. This is how he learned to be a printer. Uh, but he hated working under his brother. I think a lot of us probably would hate working under our older sibling. Um, and so Franklin, you know, James would never let Franklin write an editorial or pen anything for the newspaper. 
And so Franklin came up with this pen name, Silence Do Good. And he <laughs> wrote a series of essays under the guise of a 40-year-old widow living in Boston, you know, complaining about kids these days or complaining about Cotton Mather and the Puritans or complaining about the government. And he slipped these, these pieces of parchment under the print shop door. So when James got there the next morning, he said, oh, hello, what's this? Someone gave us a submission. And he loved it. He had no clue that it was a 16-year-old little brother doing this. I think Franklin always had that sort of wry turn in him, right? It's playful, but at the same time, you could look at it as a way of insecurity. You know, like he's not he's he's not proud enough of his own work to put his own name to it. I don't know. Um, by the time he gets to Philadelphia, right, he's taking on dozens of pen names. Sometimes too, it was to fill column inches in his Pennsylvania Gazette newspaper. No one wants to pick up a newspaper and see the same byline over and over again. But if one leader, you know, is written by Benjamin Franklin and the next one is by somebody named Celia Shortface, um, it, it, you know, there's more variety on the page. But you're right, his most famous is Poor Richard. I mean, he he develops this almanac and this is really a foundation of his fortune as well because it was the best-selling publication in the colonies. Um, under the guise of a sort of put upon, I mean, it's sort of like the American sitcom trope, you know, the put upon dad uh, and business owner just trying to make ends meet and keep things together. I, I was wondering this, and uh, I didn't send a, this to you as a question, but I remember um, reading about how Washington uh, had a really bad temper. And yes. I'm wondering what was Franklin's temperament like? Was he even keeled? Was, you know, what was he like? That's an excellent question that no one has ever asked me before. And I'm actually really excited because I know the answer. Oh, great. He famously, famously only lost his temper once. And that was when he was called before the King's Privy Council uh, in Westminster in the heart of London, in a former cockpit, actually. Um, and he was, you know, upbraided for two straight hours because the, the Privy Council assumed that Franklin was the person behind the Boston Tea Party. When in fact, he was advocating that the people who dumped the tea in the harbor should be paying the shipping companies back because they weren't insured for that. Um, and Franklin really, he lost his temper, but he did it in a very, you know, like, I think all of us know someone in our life who will do the whole, like, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed line at you. That's what Franklin was. He was seething inside while he was standing before all these august gentlemen and being stripped of his postmaster position and so forth. Um, he was really, really upset. But he kept it all inside. And I think Franklin is someone who believed that revenge is the dish best served cold because he goes home and he writes Deborah a letter from London to send back to Philadelphia about they have made me today a rebel. And he did this with his son, William, his firstborn son that, you know, William supported the king during the Revolutionary War. Franklin never said anything in public about his anger and hurt over this. But when you read his last will and testament, the first beneficiary is his firstborn son, William. And Franklin made, Franklin knew his will would be publicized. He knew it would be published. Um, and Franklin is the first beneficiary. And he says, I endeavor to give, I, I'm giving William um, all of the estate that he endeavored to deprive me of um, for a grandson of zero. You know, and that's what William is seething when he reads this, that he receives nothing from his father. But it's a really great question. He seemed to me like to be the slow burn type that would be like, okay, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and then go back and, and take it out privately. Well, I mean, I, th I think everybody pretty much knows that he, William, who was the governor of New Jersey yeah. and was a loyalist, and he and Franklin had, after uh, the revolution started, never had a relationship again. And he even ended up in prison, William, and, and Franklin wasn't willing to pull him out. 
He wasn't. William was to be his heir apparent. I mean, William was the, the guy who held the kite when Franklin put his knuckle to the key. They did that in what's today the Northern Liberties, where Franklin's, where William's pony was being uh, stabled uh, in that field. Um, William traveled with Franklin everywhere, and he went to London with him, and you know Franklin enrolled him in, in law school, um, and so forth. So when that fall, you know, and William kept turning the screw on his dad too. And I wonder if one of the reasons was because of Deborah, you know, William, when he was governor of New Jersey, Franklin had said to him, like, I've been sacked by the King and his council. So you should resign too. And William said, no, no, I'm not going to do that, dad. Um, and another thing, dad, you should come home and take care of mom. Uh, Cause Deborah was ailing then she had had a series of strokes and Franklin doesn't respond to this. And then Franklin starts writing him saying, oh, and also, William, if you're not going to you know, leave your post, you owe me a lot of money. So you can start paying that back now. And then William again used his mother, Deborah, as a, as a, dry, you know, a sort of lightning rod, if you will, between them saying, well, mom is ailing. You should come home. Um, the last letter they really exchange of any merit is William writing to his father on Christmas Eve from Philadelphia to London saying, your wife, Deborah, has, has passed away. And I think one of the reasons she did is her heart was broken because you were not sailing home to her. And I think that's another thing that really set Franklin's teeth on edge and thought, you little upstart, you know, I'll show you. Um, so when he was arrested as a loyalist and was appealing to George Washington for parole to go see his own ailing wife in New York City, Washington said no. And Washington had checked with Franklin and said, we can't do anything about it. He's done the, the warring side. William's a sad figure, I think, because he ends up he never really gets the pension he thinks he deserves from the king. Um, and he ends up living, you know, not far from Trafalgar Square, actually, also. Now that I think about it, he's on the opposite side, about the same distance from his father's house. Um, and doesn't have, you know, much of a life left to him there. Um, you mentioned that Franklin's autobiography carried tremendous respect and appeal for over 200 years. It's pretty amazing. What, what was special about what he wrote? I mean, you mentioned how Elon Musk raves about this yeah. and uh, other people. I think, you know, the, the key to the success of that book is that he only wrote about his successes. And you see it in letters where he tells um, people like, I don't want to put down any of my mistakes because I want this to be an edifying sort of motivating book. It's sort of like the first self-help book in a lot of ways, right? Like, hey, hey, everybody, I did this. You could do it too. He gives credit where credit is due to the men that helped him in Philadelphia, but he doesn't really mention Deborah in it. Um, he's very, very sort of curt about his description of her. Again, this is written to his son at the time when they were still talking. Maybe kids don't want to hear about how dad fell passionately in love with mom. Um, but I think that was really it, is that and he admitted things, again, such as slavery from the book, because he was ashamed of that at that time when he was writing it. He didn't want to talk about his past mistakes, nor does he talk about the true mother of, you know, who William's true mother was as well. But I think that's it. It's very American in that it's sunny. It's forward thinking. And it's like, I did this. You can do it, too. Yeah, I, I got to get that book. I just need to see it. But unfortunately, I can't interview him. So that's the downside <laughs> of getting that book. Uh, why didn't Franklin want to share his mistakes? I mean, you just talked about that yeah. and, and what he learned from them, because I think that would have been really valuable. Was he uh, vain or just trying to protect his reputation? He I think protect his reputation, but also to protect the people who had wronged him. You know, his first print shop was a partnership with a Philadelphian who became an alcoholic and a gambler. And Franklin, you know, omitted from the book that when some Philadelphia citizens said, we'll stake you, we'll buy out your partner, um, and we'll fund you to have your, your own independent shop, 
you know, that partner comes back into Franklin's life a couple times into Philadelphia. He had set out for what's today's North Carolina and failed in business there, came back. Franklin, to the point where he was letting this former partner bring him old sails and rags to make into paper, because paper was like fabric in those days, um, often anyway. He doesn't talk about that man's downfall. And I think maybe Franklin felt a little bit of guilt that, you know, he was so successful. I think we all have this too, right? Friends who ask for help and then you try to help them and then it doesn't work out. And if you become successful, you can feel a bit of guilt about that. Um, He does that throughout, you know, political enemies. The guy that ends up giving Franklin's eulogy when they finally get around to doing a funeral for Franklin, which we'll talk about later, you know, was a, a horrible human being that would circulate this dog roll in Philadelphia about the true you know, William's true mother and that Franklin was so ashamed of her that he let her starve and she was a, a privy cleaner. And, you know, Franklin omits this man from his memoir, even though when you look at his letters and you look at his history, this is his biggest enemy he has. And so part of this, again, might be those omissions to to not give other people space in his book. Pretty smart, though, to give the guy who was his biggest antagonist nothing in history. <laughs> and leave him out, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think pretty pretty savvy on his part. Um, people uh, uh, people called, and he liked being called doctor. Did he actually have a doctorate? Only honorary from St. Andrews and then from Oxford. And the man I was just talking about, his biggest enemy, was so incensed that he wasn't getting a, an honorary doctorate. Um, this man was a reverend, by the way, William Smith. He uh, wrote to St. Andrews in Oxford and said, oh, Franklin's, you know, experiments, his scientific experiments with lightning and so forth. That's all, you know, he stole those from other people. Um, he tried to discredit Franklin. But yeah, after the electrical experiment, the kite experiment was um, widely publicized in England. Um, that's when he started getting these accolades. And Reverend Smith was actually quite famous in his day. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, why was Franklin maligned in his final days? You write about this, and I didn't know that was the case. I mean, and, and true with for Washington, like in, at the end of Washington's second term, people were ripping him apart, uh, even though they begged him to stay in a position he never wanted. So why was Franklin being maligned of all people considering his contributions? He, you know, he, he comes back to the Constitutional Convention. He's the oldest by 30 years over, over his, his colleagues. He truly was their father and in some cases could have been their grandfather. So I think he was viewed as a bit out of touch anyway. Uh, he had, once the Constitution was ratified and, and the, the federal government began in Philadelphia, and again, this is all you know as a Philadelphian. It's remarkable to me to think that all this is happening in about four square blocks. Right. <laughs> the presidential house and so forth. Um, Franklin was seen as an ally of the French. You know, they felt that John Adams and John Jay, who were his fellow ministers, had very much spread the word that Franklin was an ally of Louis XVI, um, and that after the revolution, our biggest trading partner should be Great Britain. It shouldn't, we should go back to our our British roots and that British trade routes. Um, We shouldn't be asking for favorable trade with France. And furthermore, we shouldn't be supporting the French Revolution because that's what happens when you have direct democracy, right? The, The mob will rule. Franklin had argued vociferously during the Constitutional Convention that we should have a unicameral system. It should be a direct democracy, and we should have one house. We shouldn't have upper and lower that reeks of of British, you know, the class system. Um, And so when the French start taking on his ideas and they're going to form their government along Franklinian lines, uh, I think a lot of the Federalists in power, this nascent party that includes Hamilton and 
and um, John Adams and, and George Washington really look askew at him. Southerners, of course, um, hated that he presented this petition to abolish the slave trade. You're saying you sat with us in the Constitutional Convention in those sweltering months and talked about state rights. And here you are now trying to undo that compact that you persuaded everybody to sign. So he was a divisive figure when he died. So much to the fact that there was no there was no state funeral. That still blows me away. Our state funeral, our first state funeral in the United States was for George Washington. After Franklin died, Washington said to Jefferson, he didn't die in office and he didn't die in the battlefield. I think it's a bad precedent to begin if we start holding state funerals uh, for people who didn't do one of those two things. Furthermore, the House of Representatives resolved to uh, wear badges of mourning, a, a black armband around their, their sleeve. Uh, but the Senate, which was presided over by Vice President uh, John Adams said, absolutely not. We're not going to remember him at all. And so, you know, you have the, the Philadelphia funeral, which is held, and it's the, the biggest event in Philadelphia history at that point. The most people ever have come out. It was over 20,000 people, which was nearly two-thirds of the population are on the streets to watch this. But Franklin's own official eulogy, like a federal memorial to him, did not take place for nearly 11 further months. And only after Jefferson and Franklin's family was like, we have to do something about this. In France, it was basically a national holiday. And they had they had a full week of mourning um, and, and their national assembly had resolved that everybody should wear black. So Robespierre, before his reign of terror time, has to borrow a black coat from someone much taller than him. So he's skulking around in this oversized coat <laughs> in the streets of Paris. And there's, there's encomium after encomium and there's, public memorials for Franklin throughout the week in Paris, whereas in the United States that had really fallen on deaf ears. You know, New York City did nothing. That was the capital, of course, to begin. Uh, Philadelphia did something, but Boston did nothing, for example. Really interesting that that would be the case. Um, how did Franklin make his wealth? I mean, I knew he was a printer, but uh, I've read in several books that he was one of the wealthiest men in the colonies. Yeah, I don't know about that. I've read that too. When I looked at the tax records and I researched this more, he wasn't certainly on the level of Robert Morris, who was the financier of the revolution, another really forgotten person of the founders. Um, Franklin was comfortable enough at age 42 to retire from printing and devote his time to his scientific experiments and his philanthropy. You know, he benefited from Deborah. Uh, it was Deborah's parents' shop that they in inherited, that she inherited, that became their print shop. It's still on Market Street today. Um, he definitely benefited from Deborah's industry and her labor because she managed everything over the years that he was gone. And you can see her ledgers, by the way, at the American Philosophical Society. She's she's trading in you know coffee and, and and barrels of herring, and she's using six different kinds of currency and exchanging it because there was, of course, no U.S. dollar then. Um, he benefited from that. But then with his print shops, his stroke of genius was franchising. So he owned a series or he licensed a series of print shops up the coastal seaboard. Um, he also benefited from government posts. It's sort of funny later on in the 20th century where Franklin becomes this watchword for Republican or conservative um, you know, do-it-yourself-edness, when in fact he benefited greatly from government posts, including being deputy postmaster of the colonies, which allowed him to mail his newspaper and mail Poor Richard's Almanac for free. Yeah, I so thought he, that was really he interesting. Posted. Yeah, so he benefited a lot from that. So, you know, Poor Richard's Almanac was selling 10,000 copies a year, um, even after he had stopped working as a printer, and he wasn't paying postage for that when it was going through the mail. So that was it. He never benefited from his inventions. We should point that out. He's, he's considered today a founder of the open source movement. 
He patents didn't start until 1792 when Jefferson was Secretary of State. Franklin had died in 1790. He could have applied for exclusive commercial licenses for his lightning rod, for his stove and so forth. But he said, nope, I benefit from the inventions and technology of those who came before me. So should people benefit from my own. Um, he never wanted to name anything after himself either. So the Franklin stove was named by a merchant in London that was reselling the design. Uh, but, you know, his philanthropy, too, he was like, I will never name anything after myself. We should have Franklin University and, and the Franklin Press and Franklin's Almanac and so forth, the Franklin Fire Brigade. He said, no, if you name things after yourself, people won't contribute to it. The idea is you want people not giving you a million dollar gift or a thousand in his day. You want them giving five dollars and ten dollars consistently year after year so they feel an ownership in it. I really admire him for this. Very, very, very forward thinking, right? Very clever to think about that way. So let's talk about uh, Franklin's philanthropy, especially being the founder of what is now called the microloan program. Yeah. Used to help people uh, and he wanted to focus on blue collar careers and business. Does the fund still exist? It and, does. So yeah, go ahead. And, you know, can you give us any stats about, you know, how many people were helped or, you know, what, what happened with all this money? So a bit of a backstory in his will, you know, he's, he's 10 months before he dies. He's, he's in Philadelphia. He's, he's laid up with pleurisy. It's very painful. It's sandpaper, scabrous lungs. Um, and he decides, you know what, I want to do something that's going to set me apart from my fellow founders, these lawyers and this aristocracy again. And so he takes, he, he writes to his family in the will, like, you're not going to like this, but I'm devoting the majority of my estate to a scheme. And the scheme is he puts a thousand pounds sterling in a pot for Boston, his birthplace, and a thousand pounds sterling in a pot for Philadelphia, where he made his fortune, his beloved home. And he says, I want this to become a what's essentially microfinance. It's going to be a, a small loan program for apprentices who have finished their apprenticeship and now want to open their own business. So you're going to loan it out. This thousand pounds is going to be loaned out in 60 pound increments at below market interest rates, 5% a year, and they're going to repay it over 10 years. That 60 pounds was enough to open your own shop, to hold your own, you know, hang your own shingle out to be a carpenter or a glazier or a saddler or whatnot. And he thought, if everybody repays the loans, the principal will keep accumulating and we can make more loans for more tradespeople to start their own businesses. He did this not only because he had received help from Philadelphians to start his own business, but he wanted this working class to be part of our government. He thought, I want them to do what I did, which is you, you, have your own, you start your own business, you become comfortable in life, and then you devote yourself to public service and you serve in government right? We can have a, a counterpart to the lawyers and the, the gentry that have taken over government. And what, the other thing that I think is remarkable about this is he said, I want this to go on not for 10 years, not for 50 years, not even for 100 years. He wanted these loans to continue for 200 years. And so this book, Benjamin Franklin's Last Bet, is really the story of this money and what happened to it over these two centuries. And right, no spoilers, but the money still exists today. And you can apply if you're an 18-year-old Pennsylvanian and you want to learn a craft or a trade, you don't want to go to a four-year university, you can apply through the Philadelphia Foundation to receive a loan to pay for your job training or your trade training. Um, all of us listening, we can donate to this fund. If you go to the Philadelphia Foundation website, you can go to the Franklin Fund and add $5 or $10 to it. Uh, so the, his vision still lives on, which I think is just astounding. 
really astounding. Almost kind of like almost the first venture capitalist as well. Yeah, I mean, these, yeah. yeah, super impressive. Uh, what did um, would you ever consider Franklin one of the first great American entrepreneurs? Which was unusual since American wealth was mostly in agriculture and shipping, but that's not how he made his money. You're right. It was all urban. It was all by urban design. You're absolutely right. And he was very proud of being part of what he called this leather apron class to the point that in his, his will begins, I, Benjamin Franklin, printer. That's the first thing he puts. And then he puts, you know, statesman and, and governor of Pennsylvania, president of Pennsylvania then and whatnot. Um, he was very much so. You're right. I think you could include him among the first entrepreneurs. I should add, by the way, where this money came from. When Franklin was, there was no direct election for governor of Pennsylvania then, you were president of Pennsylvania, you were appointed. He said, I don't think anybody serving in public service should receive a salary because if public services, if office becomes a place of profit, you're going to attract the worst in American society, people who just want to feather their own nest and, and increase their own wealth. So he said, I'm not, I'm not going to accept a salary when I'm president. So when he died, he said, I want that money that the state owes to me to go to funding this next round of, you know, entrepreneur, this, this loan scheme that he had. Um, and he was very alone in this, by the way. He, he introduced the same idea at the Constitutional Convention that public servants should not be paid. And James Madison records that people were laughing behind their hands, but didn't want to mock him, you know, due to his stature. Um, but that's where it came from. Uh, he was right about all of that. <laughs> well, I wonder, these days you sort of need to be a millionaire first to be comp, right? There was a yeah. stat at the end of the book that uh, today less than 2% of Americans are millionaires, but over half of Congress are millionaires and less than 2% or over half of Americans are working class, but less than 2% of Congress have ever held a working class job. You know, we've crossed streams here. Franklin would be very dismayed to see this. But when you read uh, Lyndon Johnson's biography, he came from nothing. And it created and accumulated great wealth as a senator from getting licenses for radio and TV stations. Uh, and Mitch McConnell uh, and many others, same way that they've benefited from this. And of course, in Congress, you could uh, have insider information from right. your group and you're, there's no, no, no law against you having that insider information. Plus the um, public speaking circuit and everything else, your pension, you're right. Okay, next question. Let's go. Franklin. Yeah. <laughs> one of the, uh, one of the uh, from the audience, the question is, is a media mogul an appropriate title to apply to Franklin? Was he a media mogul? Uh, these, that's a really great question. I mean, yes, in terms of print, newspapers, and then pamphlet with the almanac. I wonder if mogul today, you know, would like when you think of Rupert Murdoch or somebody who has multiple mediums, you know, different kinds of media. Sorry, that's the plural of medium. Um, that's a really good question. He was, I mean, in his own way, he did things and he revolutionized the post service to serve him better as well. You know, he introduces the penny post. He introduces home delivery uh, before you would go to the post office and collect your mail. Um, and this all benefited his own newspaper career. Yeah, I, and that paper was super successful. Franklin was uh, blessed with tremendous capacity, unusually on both sides of his brain, which isn't um, found very often at such a high level. Um, did you learn anything that might have attributed to his scientific and creative capabilities? 
I don't know. Maybe I'm partial to this as a reader. You know, I'm a professional reader, essentially. That's what you do when you teach writing. You're just constantly reading and you're getting your students to read. He just, he just devoured books. And some of his best ideas, you know, came from books that he read as a child because he only had two years of formal schooling. School was free, but his father couldn't afford the books because uh, there were 17 children in the family, including Benjamin. Um, so Franco would get hand-me-down books or secondhand books wherever he could passed on to him. And of course, he started with the Bible and he started with Paradise Lost and John Milton and stuff. But he read a book by Daniel Defoe um, called An Essay Upon Projects, in which Defoe, you know, Defoe was on the run from creditors at that point. He was, his future success as a, an author had, it was eluding him. But a lot of Franklin's greatest ideas about philanthropy and, you know, pension schemes for widows and a fire brigade and everything comes from that book. And so, this, you know, as you, as you go through his life, there's always something he's reading that you can then see like a year later, he takes it and applies it to something else. So he, he'll hear of something that's happening in France, like electrical experiments, for example. People had tried what he did in France before that. He had read about it. I think the, the beauty of his mind was figuring out how do I make it practical? You know, if you know Philadelphia, you know where Christ Church is, you know, on Market Street there by the yeah. river. And there's a, a, a very tall steeple. And for years, that steeple was the tallest building in the American colonies. Franklin started a lottery in order to fund the erection of that steeple, not because he wanted to go to church, although Deborah went to that church, he wanted to fly the kite from the top of the steeple. <laughs> like, I need to get up high to try if I can conduct lightning this way. Uh, but the, lot of the steeple construction took too long, so that's when they decided to go out to the field. But he was very practical and absorbent in this way, um, that he would, he'd read something and then he would regurgitate it in a better form. And before he died, you know, he admitted to his public that a lot of his best-known sayings that appeared in Poor Richard's Almanac fish and visitors stink in three days and so forth, were just things that he had heard dating back to Sophocles or the Old Testament, you know, that he had repurposed and authored as his own. And even this idea in his will of the microfinance scheme, the loan scheme to support apprentices, that was somebody else's idea originally. That was written by a, a Frenchman um, who had tried to impress Franklin by doing a satire uh, about a guy who decides, you know, to find the miracle of compound interest, and he leaves it in an account. And after a hundred years, it's this. And with that money, he did this. And Franklin really loved that and wrote the guy. Said, "I'm going to do that in my own will." So I'm not discounting how brilliant he was, but I think a lot of us know very smart business people who do this. They're just sponges. You know, they they take ideas in and they go, "I could do that better." Yeah, and uh, you hear comedians say that, and musicians say that all the time that. They constantly plagiarize other people. Yeah, they pay respect to, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pay a respect lot. to. Uh, another question from the audience. Can you speak about Franklin's work with encryption schemes to send messages in secret? I don't know about that. I know that he created counterfeit-proof money, and he would have been very dismayed to find out that one of the unravelings of his loan scheme was that these guys that started their own businesses with his money were repaying the loans in counterfeit money. Uh, Franklin would have just been aghast that the U.S. currency was no longer counterfeit proof. But it's a good question. Uh, another question from the audience. If Ben Franklin was alive, do you think he would have liked Google? <laughs> he would have loved it. Oh, my gosh. I, he would have been the best Twitter user ever. The Internet would have blown his mind. Absolutely. I mean, to go back to this media mogul thing, Andrew Carnegie is a big character in this book because Carnegie derives his whole 
philanthropic notions from Franklin's example. And Carnegie, like a lot of immigrants in the 19th century, read Franklin's autobiography, you know, and really imbue, they, they sort of absorb everything he's doing. And Carnegie came to Pittsburgh, and Franklin was in Pennsylvania or Philadelphia, they're both Pennsylvanians. But Carnegie made his wealth uh, mastering a new technology, a new form of media. So Carnegie knew that Franklin got his wealth and he rose to power, you know, through his newspaper business. Well, Carnegie is a telegraph errand boy here in Pittsburgh and starts realizing the power of this medium um, and starts, you know, manipulate. He learns. I'm talking about insider trading. He starts learning, you know, listing in the, the Pennsylvania Railroad office, you know, ways to invest or things people aren't aware of yet. So I think that continuity would go forward today to Google and the internet that Franklin would say, oh, you know, we can talk about philanthropy and what these current age of moguls are doing. But I think Franklin would find a kinship with them. Absolutely. Yeah, really interesting. Well, why do you think Franklin, what do you think, this is from the audience, what do you think Franklin would be most proud of today and most frustrated by? I think he'd be proud that his version of American philanthropy is, has, you know, supplanted charity. And Franklin's really the first person to say charity in his time was you have one thing you want to fix, you raise money for it, and you directly fix that issue. You know, a widow has lost her, her home, so we have to get her a new home. Let's raise money and do that. And it was often through churches, of course, at that time and parishes. Um, Franklin, you know, with this loan scheme he leaves behind is really saying, you know, what we should be doing is leaving money behind. Part of the money should mature and part of the money should be paid out for various uses, not a single use. And Carnegie takes this and runs with it and the Guggenheims and the Fords and everything else where all of a sudden your philanthropic enterprise is not to build a new house. It's to do good or it's for to benefit mankind, right? Um, that takes place in the 19th century. So he'd be really excited about that. I think he'd really be excited too, that just as in his time, the poorest Americans give the highest percentage of their incomes. You know, Franklin said he did this when he was poor because you don't want to feel like you, um, you don't want people to think you have nothing. But he also said, when you're poor, you realize how, how much a dollar in our current currency helps somebody. You know, when you're richer, you think, oh, I, I, my gift should be a million. They should fund a building or something. Uh, when in fact, a $10 donation to a food bank can do far more good at, at the ground level. I think he'd be super frustrated at that statistic I just mentioned about Congress and who is in our government today. Um, and I think Franklin as the great compromiser would just be aghast at how entrenched both sides are. And he'd see that right now what's going on in, in United Kingdom politics as well, in French politics and so forth. Uh, what do you think Franklin would be? Uh, oh, we talked about the most proud of and, and so forth. Um, Franklin seemed very careful at cultivating. You talked about this before, cultivating and guarding his image. What were the worst things you learned about Franklin? <laughs> his treatment, absolutely his treatment of Sally and Deborah in public, not, not in private, but I think the way he treated them, he could have raised his voice for women's equality and women's schooling at that time, it would have gone a long way. Of course, his slaveholding, although he, he came to the right side of that argument later. Um, one thing that frustrates me about Franklin, you know, you can read all of his letters online. This is one thing I, I found really helpful writing a new book about Franklin, because the last one, big one had been 20 years earlier, is that, yeah, you can search all this stuff electronically. You don't have to be in a library going through books. So you can search keywords. So you can type in women, you know, and find all of Franklin's references. Um, one thing that frustrates me, just as a, 
a biographer of Franklin, is how reticent he could be about talking about his own emotions. You know, he really does come across as a very two-dimensional figure. And I think we all can picture him right now, right? And we don't ever get the reflective Franklin about what it was like to be, you know, six foot one and in the best shape of his life. He, He used to train to survive shipwrecks by strapping suitcases full of books on his back and swimming in Boston Harbor because his older brother had gone down in a shipwreck. And he said, I'm not, that's not going to happen to me. And I think, you know, he's very quick with his wit and so forth, but there's never the reflective, like, this is what I used to be. This is how I feel about something. This is what I'm scared of. A lot of Americans didn't write like that, of course, in the 18th century, you know, paper was at a premium. I, I get it. But I find that frustrating about him is that he still comes across like he's always wearing a mask. It's hard to get Franklin to let his guard down. I think, right, that is typical American male all the way up to maybe the 1990s, right? I mean, it took a long, you know, you didn't see a lot of men uh, talking about their weaknesses. So that's, that's probably true. not I that think unusual. Politi- that's true. Political figures, definitely. It's fun when I was at the Library of Congress going through Andrew Carnegie's papers because Carnegie does do this. You know, Carnegie has memos to himself like, um, you know, greed is the worst quality of a man. And then he'll, he'll flip it over and he'll say, like, everything I do, I must do to its end. It's my destiny. And you think you can see these the devil and the angel on Carnegie's shoulders a lot in his papers. Uh, Franklin, you can't see that. And so and the other thing that's kind of amazing is that all the um, greatest success stories we have in the country, for the most part, they all came from nothing. I mean, Bill Gates is probably the only one where his parents had some money, but most everybody you can tick off from Rockefeller, Carnegie, Vanderbilt, Elon Musk, whoever that is, Steve Jobs, none of them came from wealth or influence. Boy, that's a broad palette. I was thinking that the you know, one thing Franklin hated was that Washington married into his money. You know, Martha, Washington and Martha never had children of their own. Those were right. Martha's children, and that was Martha's wealth. And he felt that about John Adams, too, that Abigail, that was her wealth, and that was her land um, that they're living on the farm after Adams retires. So you're probably right. I mean, Franklin, in the book, I talk about the myth of the self-made man, because there's almost always a, a partner or a spouse standing behind them. Um, if it's not a wife, then definitely a mother. Yeah, I mean, certainly John Adams would have been nothing without Abigail. Yes. For sure. Um, What's a question from the audience? What is the biggest lesson that today's person can learn from Ben Franklin? Hire a financial manager. You know, he did this, he did this um, invest, this loan scheme, and he said, it's going to last for 200 years, and I want someone to manage it for free. And he should have said, I'm going to set aside 10 pounds a year for a professional and that the as the fund accrues interest, someone can manage this. Because what ends up happening is in the city of Philadelphia, it becomes one of the city trusts under the governance of the city council. Uh, Philadelphia's government in the 19th century was notorious for being corrupt. Although mm. present day Philadelphia city civil servants who've read this book tell me nothing's changed. I don't know if that's true. Right. Um, in Boston, you know, Boston at this time is, the book is really also the story of like the creation of American finance, because in Boston in the 19th century, you know, these great mill owners are creating trusts and their investment bankers are creating mutual funds. And the Franklin's money in Boston comes under the hand of really what we call one of the first investment bankers who says, 
I don't want to be loaning this money out to printers and bricklayers. This should be put in a safe account, gaining interest. And then when the account comes due at the end of 200 years, the citizens of Boston can use it to build something. Um, and so because of those split, because there wasn't an official manager, a paid manager in both cities, you know, Franklin's vision really went astray in both those cities and they end up in very different places. This goes to follow uh, what you were talking about here about uh, managing money and so forth. Franklin wrote The Way to Wealth. Please tell us about this book and what can we learn for it? And can we still get it? Well, yeah, and you know, it, Carnegie read it and then has his is called The Gospel of Wealth. Um, <laughs> it's not an official book. It was a pamphlet put together of sayings and it's things like early to bed and early to rise. I mean, it's not it's not what you would call like a, a business self-help book or a business how-to book as you see today. It's really just about working hard and, and knowing your competitors and everything. There's nothing that would shock anybody on this, on this call. Uh, but Carnegie then did Franklin one better because this is the gospel of wealth. And in Carnegie's book, he's talking about how unjust it is to accrue great amounts of wealth, that you should be giving everything back. Uh, Carnegie's is sort of, you know, he's calling for taxation. It's sort of the the, pre the predecessor of the giving pledge in a lot of ways. Of course, Car I'm in Pittsburgh and a lot of people still say Carnegie's name with real bile and hatred in their mouth because he's... He's seen as someone who didn't reward his workers for the work yes. doing at the time, but wanted to glorify himself by putting his name on everything in other cities. Well, I, I read a, a biography on him and he felt people, if he gave them better wages, they just wasted anyway. And so they should just trust him with taking that money and uh, using it for philanthropy. Right. Um, question from the audience. I've missed this in the first few minutes of the interview. Did you discuss your inspiration to pursue writing this book? Did you, I don't remember if you mentioned that. It was just going to that State Department luncheon and realizing I don't know anything about Benjamin Franklin. And then my wife, an attorney going, you should read his will. And then me reading the will and going, this is remarkable. You know, he knew it would be publicized. Every single gift he gives to somebody comes with a lesson attached to it. it everything has a moral. You know, he, he talks about like the greatest thing you can do for your family, for your elder relatives is to make sure they never have to enter a nursing home, the equivalent of it then. So he made sure that his sister Jane, his beloved little sister Jane, um, had her owned her house outright. Um, he wanted Benny, his grandson, to not do what his other grandson had done, which is try to curry political favor and to try to enter politics. So he says to Benny, I'm leaving you my printing press in Philadelphia. I want you to work a trade. I was astounded in the book that Benny became the biggest opponent of George Washington and John Adams and Alexander Hamilton. They called him Lightning Rod Jr. Because uh -huh. Benny was excoriating Washington as president saying, you were the disciple of liberty and yet you're holding slaves in bondage here in the presidential home. Um, and Benny, you know, I was amazed at this. The first American prosecuted under the Alien and Seditions Act was Benjamin Franklin's grandson, Benny, for his publishing, you know, his, these broadsides against the government. What uh, happened to him? He died of yellow fever before he went on trial. Wow. So, yeah. In the book, I talk about how when you're in Philadelphia today, there's really no memorial to him and you don't fear his grave where his grave is marked. But he's he's an incredible individual, what he did with his legacy. So that's really the inspiration as you read through this will. And in the book, it will walk you through it as a document. I thought we always read biographies, but a lot of these great people's lives continue after they've left the earth. And 
Franklin really does, you know, through his will and the lessons he's attaching to each gift, remains in the public consciousness for 200 years plus. Um, every generation really does seem to discover Franklin for themselves. And nowadays, as I mentioned, he's often cited as being the father of the open source movement with technology or the father of microfinance. During the Cold War, during the Sputnik era, you know, he was lauded as the first great American scientist and the idea that STEM education should be important and so forth. So every generation seems to come around to something new about him. You know, we could have spent all day talking about Franklin. And I guess the last question I have, and I think people are probably curious about this, any descendants still alive from Franklin? They are, and they're all through Sally, which I think is lovely as well. That's sort of like she gets the last lap on that. William and uh, Temple and Benny, these grandsons of his and his son, um, their lines petered out. But Sally's line, well, that would be through Benny as well. The, the Bashes, Richard and Sally Bache, B-A-C-H-E, um, and so through their line, people still exist. And when I went to Franklin's ancestral home in the Midlands of England, I was at a church where his uncle and his aunt are buried. And in the church, you see markers from Franklin's descendants that still come back and plant a tree or leave an offering. And while I was there, a man walked up and introduced himself and said, hi, you know, I'm one of Franklin's descendants. And I said, oh, I'm a little suspicious. Like, give me the lineage. And it went back to Sally. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So that was pretty cool. It is. And, you know, his descendants sued Boston and Philadelphia throughout the book, trying to get the money back, saying, well, this is really be ours. <laughs> and they're a fascinating bunch, too. You know, the first dean of Radcliffe College is a Franklin descendant, Agnes Irwin, one of the great uh, early American feminists who raised uh, medical supplies during the Civil War. She's a Franklin descendant. Um, the first secretary of, of the, the Department, U.S. Department of Civil Engineers that's constructing uh you know, um, infrastructure in the Civil War. He's a Franklin descendant. It goes on and on and on. So there are there's there are a remarkable bunch, definitely. I, I, and we're going to let you go, but I did get this final question from the audience: How much is in the fund today? Oh, it's so hard to do equivalencies. You know, someone argued with me after I wrote the book. I gave the dollar amount and they said, but you're wrong because what it really is, is this. It's the school it built, for example. And how do you, you have to do a, a modern day equivalent of that, what that school is worth today. So in Boston, the money built what's called the Franklin Institute of Technology. It's in the South End. It's a, an incredible trade school that still thrives today. But you know, in a, in a city where Harvard has a $50 billion endowment, the Franklin Trade School limps along from year to year, you know, always in the red, but it's still there. And then moving to a new campus, um, really cool ending to the book to spend time at that school. And then in Philadelphia, the so that the Boston Fund ended up with something like 20 plus million, which continued the funding of the school. Not bad. Wow. What was a $4,000 investment and, and funds? Um, hundreds of people with their jobs. And in Boston, the money for a long time went to nurses and doctors as well. They were kind of the new apprentices in Boston in the 70s and 80s. Philadelphia, you know, a lot of fights over the money over the years. They decide after World War II that the real American dream is no longer owning your own business, but it's owning your own home. So the money went to fund below, in, below market rate mortgages to keep police officers, firefighters, and teachers living in the communities right. in which they work. Um, but in the end, the Philadelphia money went, half of it went to the Franklin Institute, the amazing science museum. Yeah. Half went to the Philadelphia, the, the Philadelphia Foundation, where it's still there today and still funding people uh, to do trades and craft trainings. And that fu final amount was about 8 million. Mike, this was awesome. 
Uh, and I see people already saying that they're buying the book, just listening to you uh, talk about it. But it was a fabulous book. And we appreciate you spending the hour plus with us. Everybody have a wonderful weekend. Look forward to seeing you all next week. Thanks for listening. Bye, Mark. Bye, everybody. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.